This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. It is Monday, November 20th, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-tv and through AMIplus.ca. I'm Alex Smythe, in for Dave Brown. Let's hit those horns and go. Always good to start your Monday right here. Coming up on the show today, Quebec's public workers are in the midst of labor negotiations with the province. Michelle McQuig from the Canadian Press shares the latest on that story. And when you have different needs clothing-wise, where do you get apparel that suits you? Marco Pasqua will tell you more. And there's a new screen reader under development for the Mac. Does this still matter in the age of voiceover? Sean Priest has the details. All that and more to come on today's program, but we start as always with the top news stories of the day. And we begin overseas as there is optimism that an agreement will be reached to release hostages still held by Hamas. Jordana Miller files this report. Israel's war cabinet meeting late into the night to discuss a potential hostage release deal with Hamas. The gaps in the Qatari-mediated negotiations narrowing. U.S. and Israeli sources say Hamas would release at least 50 Israeli women and children, plus dozens of foreign nationals. They'd be freed in groups each day over a five-day ceasefire. Israel would also release Palestinian women and minors in its jails. But this is not a done deal. Final numbers and logistics still being worked out. Jordana Miller, ABC News, Jerusalem. And back here at home, Finance Minister Christian Freeland is set to announce the fall fiscal update tomorrow. Brenda Melina Navidad sets the table. It comes as the Liberal government struggles to regain favor with Canadians who are feeling overwhelmed and angry about the rising cost of living. But with little money to spend, Freeland has tried to temper expectations, warning last week the government won't be able to do everything. The co-chair of the National Housing Council that advises the federal housing minister says he expects the Liberals to leave a lot of their major policies for the spring budget. The federal government is facing calls to restrain its spending in order to to avoid fueling inflation and to help the Bank of Canada reduce interest rates faster. Brenda Molina Navidad, The Canadian Press. And staying in the world of money and finances, the Canada Revenue Agency denied or adjusted $458 million in funds from a pandemic-era wage subsidy program. John Kennedy has more. The agency is releasing a report that offers detailed findings of its audits of the Canada Emergency Wage Subsidy Program. The bulk of the findings cover the period ending March 31st, but the report also offers more up-to-date figures as of September 29th. The CEWS program subsidized businesses' staff wages by 75% in the hopes of encouraging companies to hold on to their employees during the COVID-19 pandemic as the government enacted brutal shutdowns across the country. John Kennedy, The Canadian Press. And over to Ontario, No Frills avoided a strike by reaching an agreement with its workers on a new contract. Brenda Molina Navidad has the details to the story. 
The union had announced the strike deadline on Thursday, calling for higher wages and better working conditions for employees at 17 stores, which include locations in Toronto, Whitby, Niagara Falls and elsewhere. Unifor had cited growing profits at no-frills owner Loblaw companies amid the rising cost of living as the reason for their wage demands, saying workers were fed up with the disparity between their pay and the company's earnings. The no-frills workers, most of which are part-time, will now vote on the tentative deal from Monday to Saturday. Brenda Molina Navidad, The Canadian Press, Toronto. And now for some not-so-sweet news. There's a shortage of sugar. Here's Charles de Ledesma. The UN Food and Agriculture Organization is predicting a 2% decline in global sugar production in the 2023-24 season compared with the previous year. Sugar is just the latest hit for developing nations already coping with shortages in key staples. All of it contributes to food insecurity because of the combined effects of the naturally occurring climate phenomenon El Nino, the war in Ukraine and weaker currencies. Wealthier Western nations can absorb the higher costs, but poorer nations are struggling. I'm Charles Duladesma. And that's it for the top news stories of the day. It's now time for the Daily Poll. And we'll begin with the recap of Friday's Daily Poll, where I asked you if single-use plastics are available to you in stores or restaurants, will you use them? 35% of you said yes, and 65% of you said no. And there were a ton of responses. Clearly, we struck something here because there were some really great um, responses and posts. So on Facebook, Chris chimed in with, yes, the only difference is that I'm paying out of pocket for them that I was repurposing before for free. Brett commented, it, it's kind of hard not to use them. So if they're available, yes, I will do my best to do my part to limit my waste, but it's hard. Maria added, no, too much plastic is offered that is not needed. Karen wrote, if, it's all, uh, if it is all that's available, yes. If there's a, an aluminum equivalent, no. And then Craft and uh, Deborah said, yes, I use Instacart due to disability and it's costing me a fortune for recycled bags and I'm getting a huge pile of them. I have no way to donate them either. And then on Twitter, Studio Brock chimed in, this court ruling really riled me up. Oil is killing our planet and everything on it, and plastic is made of the stuff. We each use a credit card's worth of microplastics a year, and our oceans is covered in it. To claim it's not a toxin is ludicrous. So thank you all very much for your thoughtful responses. I always appreciate it when you write in, share your opinion beyond just voting on the poll. And so now for today's poll, there's a bit of a setup because Napoleon's iconic hat has a new owner after being sold at auction. Tom Soupy Burridge shares the winning bid. A black felt bicorn hat belonging to Napoleon Bonaparte when he ruled the French Empire in the 19th century has sold at auction in Paris for more than $2 million. And so that is quite a hefty price to pay for a hat. But it got me thinking about the value of that hat and the historic significance. So I want to ask you on the daily poll today, should historically significant items 
be allowed to sell at auction? Yes or no? And I want to welcome in Elizabeth Moeller, who is still filling in for the co-host duties today. Hello, Elizabeth. How are you doing? I am good, Alex. Thank you. Happy Monday. Happy Monday. So, Elizabeth, I want to know from you, should historically significant items be allowed to be sold at auction? I'm going to say no. I feel like these are items that we need to either put in a, a museum or have on display somewhere for people to learn and understand about their legacy, whether that legacy be good or bad. Um, and I feel like if they are sold for auction, like where does that profit go and who is that helping? And so if in some ideal perfect world that I ran, we were going to have items available for auction, I think I would want to see absolutely without question any money that's that's um used or, or you know towards that item going to some kind of charity um and that that be really clearly spelled out but i feel like there's a real um i think there's a for me a real ethical issue when we start selling these things that i think could have a real important sort of piece in our history to talk about and be on display yeah, and so for a bit of context, specifically when it comes to Napoleon bottom parts hats, I think there's about 15 or 16 of them still uh, around Keeping in circulation. Around. A, a, more, a majority of them are or are still in museums or things like that, but there are a few different in uh, ones in private hands. So there was one that was sold previously for about $400,000. Obviously, now this is a, a, new, a new price tag of $2 million. I, I agree, especially when there is a, a a very finite number of these items. Like I'm, mm -hmm. because there's still quite a few available uh, of Napoleon's hats. I'm a bit more Less open concerned. to allowing it being an auction, but I I still think you know there's a there's plenty of museums who who would be just as happy to to have one of them. You know, you you could send yeah. it all over the world. Each uh, kind of museum or each region of the world could have a piece of this history, and then that way it's not in private collector hands. But yeah, I'm I'm torn. I I, I personally would love to own a piece of this history. So that's I think Me too. where it's I'm not in my budget. <laughs> yeah, well, it's it, obviously it's out of my, but I don't have $2 million lying around. Uh, but if I did, you know, I, I would love to own a piece of that. So I think that's where I'm like on that fence, because I personally have given the opportunity. Yeah, I would jump at, at the chance to do it. But I also feel there is the value of having it housed in a museum where it's cared for properly and it can be it can be shared by more people. I think that's where I land on it. And I also feel too, like, what is the purpose? Like, aside from the fact that you might like to wear Napoleon's hat on the air tomorrow if you, if you <laughs> owned it, like, what is the purpose besides, you know, entertainment of people buying it? Whereas I can clearly see a purpose for these items being in a museum or being in some kind of gallery where people can talk about and learn about the history and who Napoleon was in this case and why, you know, what his influence was in, in sort of um, French emperorship, so we, shall we say. So I feel mm -hmm. like I think about the learning, I guess this is the educator in me, and how if these items are in private hands, sometimes that learning opportunity can can go away or dissipate. Yeah, well, I mean, if you have money, how else are you going to spend it than on really expensive <laughs> I things? I suppose that... so. <laughs> Make a Elizabeth, donation to a you. charity? <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Elizabeth, thank you very much. Uh, uh, don't go anywhere. We'll be checking in with you throughout the show. But for now, 
I want all you at home to be sure to vote in on this poll. I want to find out what your thoughts are. Should historically significant items be allowed to sell at auction? Yes or no? You can vote on Twitter or X at Accessible Media on Facebook at Accessible Media Inc. You can also send an email, feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca, or maybe give a call, 1-866-509-4545. Coming up after the break, Quebec's public workers are in the midst of labor negotiations with the province. Michelle McQuig from the Canadian Press shares the latest news on this story. You're watching Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and on audio on AMIplus.ca. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Smythe. There were a number of stories making headlines this weekend. Here to help break it all down is Michelle McQuig. Michelle is the weekend news editor with the Canadian Press. Hello, Michelle. How are you doing? Hello, Alex. I'm just fine, thanks. How are you? I'm okay, just despite that little voice crack that just happened when I said hello. I don't don't know if that's going to continue, but <laughs> always love Wonder Years moments, especially on air. Yeah, those are great. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so let's get into the first uh, story that you wanted to cover, and it involves labor action in Quebec. Mm. So the public sector workers are trying to get a deal done with the province. What's the latest here? Yeah, so this has been a long and ongoing process, and it started becoming more uh, sort of obvious to the public in the past month or so, but it's about to escalate a lot. The Coles Notes version is that the government has been negotiating with five or six public sector unions since late last year. I think those start talks started in November or December of 2022. Uh, four offers have come forward from the government. The re union has rejected them all, including the most recent one, which was tabled last month. Uh, the union, excuse me, um, the government is now calling on the union or almost begging them to make a counter offer, but that does not appear to be happening ahead of a whole bunch of planned strikes for this coming week. We already had a one-day walkout from about 420,000 public sector workers a couple of weeks ago. Uh, don't mind my noisy dog who likes to scratch herself loudly. Sorry about that. Um, that one-day strike has already happened. There's been no further movement on talks, so this week things are going to get real. <laughs> We're going to have a number of strikes that we'll I'll talk more about that later on. But uh, the, the the unions are now going to be stepping up their efforts to pressure the, the government to raise their latest contract offer. And so let's dive into what the two sides are seeking out of this deal. So what are mm -hmm. what is the province looking to, to lock down and, and what are the unions looking to get? It's it's complicated, but I will send, I'll focus on the baseline issue of wages just because that's the easiest one to unpack. The government's last offer was about a 10.3% raise for all public sector workers over five years, plus a payment of about $1,000 a year in the first year, excuse me, a person in the first year. Uh, so that's the, that's their primary offer. That was up the, the one before that. The baseline wage increase was 9%, so moving up to 103 represented some movement from them on that one. But the unions are not going to have that. What they're looking for is, is a different kind of structure altogether. First of all, they want it to be a three-year contract, not a five-year one. And what they want to see are 
they have very specific wage increase demands, but they also want these tied to inflation. So they want mm. salary raises that are tied to inflation plus increases on top of that, that that escalate every year for the contract. And the government uh, has not indicated much willingness to go, to adopt that kind of model. Yeah, well, it, it's for sure. And this is part of those negotiations that are probably going to land somewhere in the middle. Both sides aren't going to be happy about it, but that usually is a sign that that's a pretty pretty good deal. Uh, yeah, in well, it's interesting, though, because this has been like there's been a year and they're still really, yeah. really far apart. And now, of course, things are getting are reaching critical mass in terms of public pressure because of the, the strikes that are about to unfold and that will probably keep escalating if there's no deal. Well, and that's usually, uh, it's a certainly a, a tool that uh, unions use to put apply that pressure. So mm -hmm. in speaking about those strikes, how will they impact uh, the residents of the province? They're going to impact just about everyone. 600,000 public sector workers province-wide. It's inevitable that so everywhere, at least, there's going to be about some impact. For three days this week already, for instance, most of schools are going to be closed because the bulk of teachers are involved in these unions and they're going to be on strike for three days starting on starting tomorrow. A bunch of healthcare workers, registered nurses, technicians, they also have strikes planned this week. Uh, these unions rep basically represent workers from most fields that you can think of in Quebec. It's education, it's healthcare, it's government services, you name it. So mm. with all of these unions planning various forms of labor action, I think at least all of them are going to be off at the job at some point over the coming week. Uh, it varies slightly by union. You know, some people are doing two-day walkouts, some doing three, et cetera. The dates stagger a little bit, but uh, there, I, I can't really imagine any Quebecois communities that are going to not see the effects of this in the next few days. And like I said, the union hasn't, the unions have not made their plans very clear yet, but they certainly have indicated that they're willing to escalate this kind of action if things don't resolve. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll leave that story there for now, but shifting gears over, you wanted to explore a situation in Ontario when it comes to the Ontario Liberals as they work to find yeah, a remember new provincial leader. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, remember the remember the Ontario Liberals, the ones that used to form government and be a huge political dynasty in Ontario, and I think they were in power for like 15 years uninterrupted at one point, and now for the past five or six, they've had they have not even had official party status. Yeah, those oh, guys. Oh, that one, that one. Yeah. Yes, the, yeah. the third party in Ontario. <laughs> that's as that's you, the one. Mean, yeah, yes. <laughs> the, the once mighty, now decidedly not so mighty Liberal Party is trying to claw its way back to to the main table, so to speak. And what, what I'm finding interesting here is the difference in leadership contests. So right now they are without a leader. Stephen Del Duca was the last leader. He stepped down the night of the most recent disastrous election for the party, which was last June. And now we are two weeks away from naming a new leader. And what I've been finding interesting here is the way that this leadership contest seems to have breathed a bit of new life into the party and, and sort of helped with its quest back to relevance. And, and uh, share a bit more. Who are some of these uh, sure. candidates vying for party leadership? Yep. So there's four of them. Uh, the presumed front runner at the moment is a, name, a woman named Bonnie Crombie. She's the mayor of Mississauga, Ontario. For those who don't know that, that's a community just west of Toronto. It's a pretty big city in its own right. Um, quite a major Toronto suburb, and Bonnie Crombie has been mayor of Mississauga for about nine years now. She also had a bit of a term as a federal MP backbencher prior to that. 
Uh, so she's considered to be the front runner, but two of the other candidates have now formed up a, a bit of an alliance to try and stop her. That's uh, Yasser Nakvi and Nate Erskine-Smith. They're both currently federal liberal MPs, and they've uh, they've been asking their supporters to follow, to back each other as their second choice instead of Bonnie Crombie in a bit to try to stop her. So we'll see how that mm. plays out. The fourth candidate is the only one right now with a current seat in the Ontario legislature, and that's a, a liberal MPP by the name of Ted Shue. And so what are some of the, the key issues uh, that these candidates are focused on as they, they kind of uh, jockey for for that leadership? Yeah. Well, it was interesting that yesterday was the final debate. There have been five leadership debates over the course of this contest, and they weren't really taking shots at each other so much, but more talking about issues like healthcare wait times, how to address staffing shortages, uh, repealing public service wage caps, all things that have come up pretty pretty significantly with the current uh, Doug Ford administration in Ontario. They weren't taking so many personal pot shots at each other. So those are the issues that were kind of being focused on by the candidates. But the underlying subtext for all of this is how do you bring the party back? How do you make the liberals sing again? How do you make them viable? Um, that's sort of always the, the anything that underpins these debates. The, the big question about leadership is who is going to be the one to make the Liberals relevant once again in Ontario politics. And what I'm finding interesting here is how we're seeing a bit of a bit more momentum than I certainly expected. Um, Liam Casey, my colleague who covered the debate, provided some context that, that this particular contest has brought in about 100,000 new memberships. If you look Ooh. back to the successful rise of Pierre Poilievre, that was a big, big tool for him as he was able to drive party membership. Uh, so seeing a, a huge increase in engagement with this particular contest is interesting. Uh, new memberships were like half of the 100,000 or much or even much, much less in the past two leadership contests. So this one has, a, you know, garnered a lot more interest. It's also raised a lot of money, which is interesting, too. Um, this was a party who was not when you don't have official party status, there's a lot of money you lose access to. They didn't have a ton of money and they had about a $3 million debt from the last election campaign, this leadership contest has enabled them to totally erase that debt already, which is a bit of a surprise. So um, even though it's been bubbling under for a lot of people among party faithful, this particular leadership contest seems to have captured more attention than we realized. Yeah, and and so how how is the party feeling in terms of you know the confidence you, you laid it out very well you know there's new new membership coming there's new money flowing in do they feel confident that they'll be able to take on the PCs the next uh, election cycle? Well, no one's counting their chickens before they're hatched in that way. No one's really making public comments. But in terms of timelines, it lines up quite well. The next Ontario election won't be till 2026. So the, the new leader, whoever it winds up being, will have a couple of years to really find their feet and get known to the public. That's going to be a big thing because most of these players are not exactly household names among those who are not following Ontario politics. Um, but a big challenge will be for any of the, the, the three who are considered to be ahead of the pack a little bit, the first challenge is going to be to get elected into the legislature itself. So because mm. um, <laughs> none of them currently have seats in the ledge, only Ted Shue does at the moment. So that uh, I, I, I suspect if I had to make an educated guess that they're kind of taking it one challenge at a time and have a few things to knock off their list for 2026. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Michelle, thank you so much for uh, sharing these stories. Have yourself a wonderful week and we'll chat on Friday. Sounds great. Take care, Alex. Okay, that was Michelle McQuig, the weekend news editor with the Canadian Press. Coming up after the break, when you have different clothing needs, 
Where do you get the apparel that suits you? Marco Pasqua will tell you more. You're watching Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and on audio on AMIplus.ca. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Smythe in for Dave. Clothing is designed to suit fashion, style, and comfort. Your wardrobe can fit you well, whether it's tailored or off the rack. But when you have different clothing needs, where do you get apparel that suits you? To give, more, uh, uh, give you more about the adaptive clothing industry is accessibility consultant Marco Pasqua. He has more details. He really wants to get into this topic. I do too. Hello, Marco. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Alex. Nice to hear from you. Yeah, it's great to be able to chat with you as well. So why did you want to talk about this topic uh, today, Marco? Well, quite simply, I mean, I don't know if you can tell with on the show, but I, I've always considered myself a very fashionable guy. Uh, and I feel like anybody with a disability, any person in general, should really feel like they can be comfortable and be their authentic self. And what better way than to show uh, your style through the clothing that you wear? Um, but oftentimes, the adaptive clothing market has been seen as sort of a really niche market. And it's also been seen as somewhat clunky over the years because adaptability generally means people think it means uh you know additional zippers or buttons or different configurations but just because you're wearing adaptive clothing doesn't mean you can't be fashionable and so i wanted to talk a little bit about that especially with the winter season uh coming upon us and you know we have to put on more layers that doesn't necessarily mean that those layers can have to feel uncomfortable <laughs> Absolutely. So what considerations are there for folks with disabilities when they need to purchase clothes that are going to fit them and their needs? Yeah, so I think it really depends on your disability, right? Um, if you're a wheelchair user like myself, you want to make sure that uh, clothing is not super bulky uh, around your chair, that it's easy to uh, pull up or or pull down uh, if you have to use the, the washroom, that kind of thing. Um, and then, of course, your dexterity needs. Um, so is it difficult to take on and off the buttons, undo uh, and zip up zippers, um, that kind of thing. The last thing that I want is I'm out at a party and and then the next thing you know, you know, I, I need to, you know, go to the bathroom or something. And then I'm having difficult like this. I mean, that's that could be a nightmare. So really, you have to know for yourself uh, the type of adaptions that you need and then really consider those things when you're going out there looking at that fashion. Well, and you mentioned already that the, the industry is kind of shifting, it's evolving, it's changing, that it, it's not necessarily just this niche uh, uh, kind of um, sector within the clothing department where it's very um, kind of tailored for a very specific clientele that it is growing. How affordable is adaptive clothing getting? Because in the past, it was quite mm. expensive because it was so tailored and so specific. Has that changed? Yeah, I mean, it's starting to change. I would say that it is still quite niche in the pr perspective of the, you know, financial 
aspect of things. So it is kind of costly, but I think that as the market starts to grow, um, that's going to change because then it's not going to be as niche and then those price points are going to go down. I will say this though, although it is somewhat currently of a premium price point, you are getting high quality fabrics and it's, uh, this is definitely not something I would consider fast fashion. So it's not going to disintegrate off of your body the second that you put it on. Um, and some of the things that I see with fast fashion is, you know, you're you're really trying to put a shirt over top of your, your body and maybe because of your disability, you stretch or you pull in ways that your average person wouldn't. And then that clothing is going to tear easily. This is not something that I've found with the adaptive clothing that I've been looking into. And also, not only is it fashionable, but it's super convenient when you can easily just undo snaps as opposed to your traditional buttons. Um, and so I do think that that price point is going to drop down, um, especially, uh, I think, uh, during this holiday season, but also after this holiday season, because we do have some numbers on the stats of this market, and you're going to be surprised by them. Let's dive into that. Share more. You got some numbers. Share them with us. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, adaptive fashion is actually exploding and the international market is predicted to grow by 15.24% annually and reach $5.67 billion US by 2028. 2028, that's only four years away. And that's according to a 2022 Stratview research report. So uh, like this is coming in. I really think that more and more people, even those without disabilities may choose to do adaptive fashion. Um, so simply because of the ease of use. And I think that as we get more people on board and maybe even some influencers out there who are utilizing it, I've seen adaptive fashion showcased on shows like um, Dragon's Den and Shark Tank. So this is now hitting the mainstream and that's the exciting part. And so where can people go to find adaptive clothing? Well, yeah, aside from your typical Google search, uh, there is some great Canadian providers out there like Is Adaptive, uh, AL Designs, uh, which uh, I believe has been uh, featured on AMI before, uh, June Adaptive, and in the States, uh, I'm told Buck and Buck, 7-7 Adaptive, Tommy Hilfiger has an adaptive line, and also Zappos has an adaptive line now. So um, yeah, it really is starting to hit some of the clothing lines that we've heard of before. Yeah, and I, I find it always very fascinating too that now it's like, you know, there was always a need for adaptive clothing. We've always, you know, there's been wheelchair users for a long time, and there's been those niche market and, and designers who had been really working on a case-by-case -case basis. But now, as you mentioned, Tommy Hilfiger ha having a line, like, it just kind of makes sense for, for a clothing brand, especially a big uh, multinational one. This is a another subsect uh, and another um, kind of market share that you can access that other uh, companies, other brands just haven't taken advantage of. And it's like, you're, you're, you're gonna be getting a captive audience if you're, you're putting your <laughs> quality of clothing into a way that's accessible for their needs. Well, I mean, why wouldn't you want to expand uh, your market cap by simply addressing the needs of more people? I mean, that's the beauty of universal design. Uh, you're mm -hmm. designing not just for one person, but for all people. And why can't be that be the case for clothing as well? Um, I think that you would be silly to not say, hey, there's a, a captive market of individuals with disabilities who are hungry for adaptive fashion. They're hungry um, to to look fashionable. And I, I, I hate the stigma around persons with 
disabilities just because of the fact that we may have certain adaptive needs that must mean that we don't necessarily care about looking great or that we always want to wear sweatpants because it's easier. I mean, you can wear stylish sweatpants that are easy to use, but you can also dress up to the nines and go to a party and still look and feel your best. And that comes down to those designers really making that effort and understanding that this is doesn't have to be niche and that you can actually be making more to your bottom line by tailoring to more people. And uh, I, I already get the sense that uh, I know your answer to this, but how would you describe like in terms of the attitude of the industry and in terms of catering and, and tailoring clothing that is adaptive and uh, fits the needs of uh, folks from the disability community? I think that over the years, the fashion industry has developed this sort of um, this stigma for themselves of being sort of overly posh and and really um, sort of highbrow and all these types of things, you know, sticking their nose up to this. And you may still have some designers that feel that way, but I do think that the industry is changing and that they are starting to realize um, actually th there's a lot of innovation that can come from creating clothing for persons with disabilities. And that innovation can translate to other markets as well. So, you know, with some of the bold styles that you're seeing out there um, just for people in general, um, um, and actually, I'm seeing a resurgence of the baggy clothing uh, back in the mm -hmm. from back in the 90s, like when I was a little bit younger. And uh, so some of the good some of the good things of fashion are coming back. Some of the not so great things of fashion are coming back. <laughs> but maybe I'm, I'm just getting I'm showing my age here a little bit. But I am excited uh, to see um, that there are various different styles and those styles can all be adaptive. And I think that it should be uniquely to the individual who's wearing that. So I'm excited of what the future has in store in terms of this market and the attitude I think is changing. Yeah, and uh, I, I echo the sentiment, Marco. I don't think I can do the super baggy jeans and the super baggy shirts anymore. <laughs> I think that's something that's better left in the past. But thank you so much for bringing this uh, topic forward. Have yourself a wonderful day. Yeah, thanks so much. And if I don't talk to you before, uh, happy holidays. You know, I think this is one of my last shows before I'm off for the holidays. So thanks so much, Alex, to you and the team at AMI. It's always a pleasure. Absolutely. That was Marco Pasqua. Marco is the co-founder of Meaningful Access Consulting. In 60, minute, uh, 60 seconds, I should say, Elizabeth Moeller shares the weather story of the day. But first, here's Canadian press reporter Rob Westgate with your Morning Business Minute. Bay Street closed up Friday, lifted by a strong performance from the energy sector. Toronto's S&P TSX gaining 123 points to settle at 20,176. In New York, the Dow Jones Industrial Average was relatively flat, adding just under two points at 34,947. As for the Nasdaq, it was up slightly, just shy of 12 points at 14,125. Asian markets seeing some mixed action this morning with Japan. Japan's Nikkei down 197 points at 33,388. The Hang Seng in Hong Kong, meantime, up 324 points at 17,778. Looking ahead this week, Finance Minister Christian Freeland is set to table the fall economic statement on Tuesday, the same day that Statistics Canada is set to release its Consumer Price Index report. And finally, the loonie is trading overseas this morning at 72.96 cents US. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Rob Westgate. And now it's time for the weather story of the day with Elizabeth Moeller. A 
Elizabeth, things are getting a bit bitter out in the prairies, and it's not just because the Winnipeg Blue Bombers lost in the Grey Cup last night. It's not just because the Winnipeg Blue Bombers last le lost last night to the 10 times fast, but you, you know, enjoy that warmer weather that you felt this weekend on the prairies because it's not going to last. Get ready for a big change this week. We are going to see a cold front that's going to be coming and temperatures are going to drop and plummet quickly. It's going from mild double digits to below freezing after this front passes. Many places are going to stay below zero for about a week. Wind chill values will make it feel even chillier. By tonight, all major cities will likely be below freezing temperatures and this chilly weather is going to stick around for at least until the beginning of December. So we see Regina, Saskatoon and Winnipeg, they're all going to experience that solid freeze. While Calgary and Edmonton, you're going to get closer to freezing later in the week this week. So prepare for the return of wind chills in the minus teens burr for many places. But some good news is that there are no big storms that are predicted until the end of next week. There might be lake effect snow squalls south of the Manitoba lakes through midweek. Unfortunately, the snow drought does continue for parts of the prairies, especially for the Edmonton area where significant snow is not yet expected. So wear extra layers and dress with everything you're going to need for snow and wind and everything in between. And I'm sorry, Winnipeg, once more. <laughs> Sounds good. Thank you very much, Elizabeth. Don't go anywhere. We'll be checking in with you in the next segment for the entertainment report. But coming up after the break, David Fincher's new film, The Killer, is trending on Netflix. Amy Amanti gives her review on this action-packed film. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and on audio on AMIplus.ca. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI. I'm Alex Smythe, and for Dave, paid assassins move among us without being noticed. They are ruthless and undetectable. Don't worry, I'm not talking about real life. That is the premise of the new Netflix film, The Killer. Entertainment critic Amy Amanti from Vancouver has her review of the film, but before we bring her in, let's take in this film uh, trailer clip right now. A man sits before a window. I find music a useful distraction. He inserts earbuds. A focus tool. Keeps the inner voice from wandering. At night, he slips on a balaclava and waits outside a door. He pulls a gun from the director of Seven, Fight Club, Gone Girl. This is what it takes. He stretches, cocks a rifle, and dresses in a grimy bathroom. My process is purely logistical. He prepares weapons, vehicles, and rooms. If I'm effective, it's because of one simple fact. I don't give a He shoots. That was a clip from the movie's trailer, The Killer. Let's welcome in Amy Amanti for her review. Hello, Amy. Good morning, Alex. How are you this Monday? 
I'm not too bad. I'm excited to chat about this film. I had a chance to take it in as well. So before I share my thoughts, obviously, I want to get your thoughts on this. So this movie stars Michael Fassbender and Tilda Swinton. So what was it about this movie that made you want to hit play? You know, originally when the trailer started to play, because, you know, you get these little teaser trailers when uh, it pops up in your Netflix fleet feed as something that you might be interested in watching. Um, I started to listen to it a little bit. It sounded a little bit to me like the Dexter series. Did you ever watch the Dexter series? Oh, yeah, I watched it from start to finish, from the exciting uh, beginning to the, the disappointing right. end. I was there for the entire ride. Right. Okay. So it was, uh, you know, the the, so the first what three seasons of it, notwithstanding the uh, new blood stuff, but the mm -hmm. uh, the the first three seasons of it, this idea of this killer, and of course, it, you know, it's slightly different, but the the way that uh, Dexter narrates uh, his own life. So this killer narrates what he's doing, and we hear this in the trailer. I thought, ooh, there's something evocative there, and I want to find out more. So that's really why I hit play. Um, well, we yeah. could we could we could expand that yeah. a little further. Alex, well, okay, so 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 let's build on that then. Let's yeah. build on that. So uh, this film, obviously, di uh, directed by the great David Fincher, who is known for that atmosphere, that tense moments. Like the, the he has a real like mood and, and theme throughout all the films. And you heard the kind of some of the movies he uh, he's directed in that clip we played. Now this is also adapted from a French graphic novel series of the same name, The Killer. How do you feel the the novel series like translate into a film or onto the screen like this one? Do you feel like it, it's right for an adaptation? Well, certainly, you know, anytime we adapt a novel or a novel series or a graphic novel or any kind of book into a film or series, you know, a, a TV type genre, we have to look at things like they're two different entities, right? We always want to compare the book to the movie, that kind of thing. And really, they're very different mediums of art. So we have to we have to consider that. Um, that being said, I often think that when we try and take um, something that has been a series of books or novels or graphic novels, uh, you know, so several editions, uh, several episodes in print and try and distill it into two hours, we miss out on a lot of richness that the books or the series of books allow us to explore. And so I think um, by proxy, there's a lot that gets lost in that. And I think that would be, you know, having not read the graphic novels, um, but knowing that that's exactly what happens in this kind of thing, that I really felt that in this movie, that I'm watching this movie feeling like, why am I watching this? What is the purpose? I feel like I'm missing out on some kind of larger story that even though it's really long and it feels really long, um, it's it's at least two hours, maybe a little bit longer than that, but it feels like four hours, like it feels long and drawn out, but you still feel like you are fundamentally missing out on storytelling somehow, right? I, that's how I felt. I just felt like there was stuff missing it felt rushed, even though I felt like, when is this going to be over? Yeah, well, and, and certainly uh, for me in watching this film, I love the the opening kind of, I guess, scene sequence, yeah. uh, like that that opening act uh, to introduce, which is a majority of what was played in that clip, that yeah. that scene, that narration, that really the setting up for part. it was the it, it was great, and and you could sense that that was that 
Fincher aspect as a director, building that tension, slowly ratcheting it up, building that intensity, but having that that calmness from Michael Fassbender. And then obviously as the film goes on, it, it kind of flows from that thriller and, and crime uh, story to more of like kind of an action revenge piece. So how do you think the film lived up overall, especially on that strong start to the movie? Yeah, I mean, I think it is it is kind of toted as a bit of a, an action kind of thriller piece. And I actually didn't find that there was a lot of action or thrill to it, to be honest. Mm. Um, I liked the opening sequence very much. I liked this methodical, like, uh, introspective character building, this idea of getting deep inside the character's mind and was looking more, like, again, we saw that in Fight Club, right? We see that mm. kind of um, uh, way of... of the character opening up to us we feel like we can even though we're not killers we feel like we can relate somehow there's something that's been made deeply personal to us about these characters we're being let into the secret world of the inside of the character's mind and there's something really interesting about that only to have like this um thing that that happens that i'm not going to give away and then the character goes on a completely different trajectory um and you know it maybe is i guess supposed to be an action thriller only to there for there to really be one fight sequence that maybe is considered an action piece in this um, particular film so again then i just found it to be kind of like went when kind of drawn out and kind of like you know get to the point here and we all kind of know how this is supposed to end um and is it you know is it gonna you know is it gonna meet the expectations of that so um then i found it to be like super predictable after that and no more like character introspection you know no more character development no more interesting character stuff Right. And in terms of, as you mentioned, there was that kind of major fight scene in this play. It's very, it's a chaotic, it's frantic. There's a mm -hmm. lot happening. How did the audio description do at capturing the phonetic energy of that action scene? I will say um, big kudos to Liz Gutman um, from IDC, who I've been listening to her description from uh, from the time that I reported on Bridgerton uh, on this platform where I criticized that description <laughs> and I actually happened to be in a platform where I was sharing my disappointment in that description around the diversity piece of it um, uh, and Liz Gutman was in that space and she said um, that was me that described that uh, <laughs> put her hand up and said oh that was me and I had shared to her about that being how I was not unable to follow the story because there was a lack of that piece and the, the 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 180 change that she had made in how she writes her description because of that moment um, and her and i've kind of been connecting a little bit uh, through facebook over that so now when i listen to her description i can see the change in her because she has had um she has been impacted by how community has responded to the way she writes things so the nice thing about this fight sequence is that there is so much richness in terms of sentence structure and the different use of verbs. And oftentimes in fight sequences, there's like a lot of kicking and punching and la la la. And that's really all we get is kicks and punches and, you know, but there's a lot of different variation in the verbs and the sentences that make it really interesting to listen to. So it's like, 
you know, there's never, there's never two punches thrown kind of thing. It's always a different kind of verb or a different kind of action, or the characters never fall the same way. There's, there's, there's different, different words that are being used. And that's really evocative to listen to. It's my analogy of when you go to buy a scented candle and you need the coffee beans in between Mm -hmm. to like break up that sort of scent stimulation. That's what audio description is like for me. If you start every sentence with she or he, you know, he does this, he does that, he does this, he does that. And you're like, oh my gosh, like break the record, right? So the sentence structure and the the, the use of verbs and fight sequences, I think become really important. I, I love that description that you 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 did to explain the 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 importance and the variety that can come with the audio description and, and the impact that can have on the scene. Because as you say, Amy, like it's not, two of the same punches being thrown there. It's a variety of punches and styles and everything visually being shown, but to capture that on the audio description is, is phenomenal. Now, that said, the audio description, it, it, it seems to be a very big positive for this film. For myself, this movie seemed like a bit of a, it lacked a bit of that that passion, that that heart, especially in once you got past that opening sequence, from from a director like David Fincher, from an actor like Michael Fassbender, Tilda Swinton, very well-known and well-respected uh, people involved in this film kind of fell flat to the end. What are your final thoughts and would you recommend this to someone to view? I think if you're somebody who's interested in um, in listening to quality description, you can hit play on this one and just listen to it for the description. Um, you know, if you're the kind of person who is consulting on description and want to, you know, learn more about what QC and description should and could feel like in quality description, this is a really good example of what some really rich description could look like. Otherwise, if you're just looking for like a fun movie to watch for a weekend, I would choose something else to hit play on. That's just my personal opinion. <laughs> That's very fair, and I I would echo the same thing, Amy. Thank Amy, thank you so much uh, uh, for taking the time reviewing this film for us. Have yourself a wonderful week. Yeah, you as well, Alex. That was Amy Amanti, who is the entertainment critic based in Vancouver, BC, and she reviewed the movie The Killer, which is currently streaming on Netflix. In a minute, Elizabeth Muller will be here for the entertainment report, but first. OpenAI has fired its CEO. Here's reporter Mike Dubusky with Tech Trends. On Friday, the board of OpenAI announced that CEO Sam Altman was out. OpenAI's board of directors had decided that Altman had not been totally transparent with them. Semaphore Tech reporter Louise Matsakis says it's all the more unusual because the company was doing well with high-profile partnerships and millions using its programs like ChatGPT. This was a company that was, you know, on a rocket ship. OpenAI is a nonprofit, but it has a for-profit company inside it. The nonprofit its stated goal is to provide a check on the company's for-profit efforts. Matsakis says that structure is what caused many to speculate that Altman had failed to thread the needle in the board's eyes. How much should they be considering things like profit versus ensuring that they're rolling out these AI tools in a way that's really safe? With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. And now it's time for the entertainment report with Elizabeth Moeller. And Elizabeth, you wanted to take this report to, to reflect on the life of uh, someone who transcended just entertainment, but it was more in the political space, but her presence was felt everywhere. Absolutely. Yeah, it really was. Rosalind Carter, who, of course, was the wife of 
uh, Jimmy Carter and closest advisor to Jimmy Carter, passed away at age 96. Um, she served as first lady from 1977 to 1981. And she was a really big part of her husband's campaign in the 1960s when he was campaigning in Georgia. Um, she did care about performing arts and music and often would invite artists to the White House. She was also very well known for raising awareness about mental health and caregiving and women's rights. And, and just keep in mind too, this was in the 60s and 70s. Um, really a global humanitarian. And unlike many other first ladies, she in, attended many important meetings and talked about controversial topics. And she represented her husband on trips to other countries. And during her husband's time, it's interesting to note that she worked to remove stigma around mental illness and issues affecting older adults. She also led the President's Commission on Mental Health, and she worked with Habitat for Humanity. And she's also got a biography. It's called Lady of Plains, First Lady of Plains, and she's written a couple other books on caregiving as well as mental health. So with all that said, you know, talking about uh, Rosalind's life and her legacy, I wanted to ask you a question, Alex, and that is, what lessons can today's leaders learn from her commitment as we address the evolving needs of our communities? Yeah, I, I think that um, there there is a power to to being in in office and in, in a political space that I I don't see kind of the last few uh, if, if we're looking the U.S. side the first ladies mm -hmm. I, I uh, the the spouses of these leaders there, there's a great opportunity to to show the commitment and, and you uh, you highlighted some of the work she was able to do with their time in office and. The last few leaders, you, you're you're not really seeing that same level of, of impact or um, kind of legacy being left behind, and and I think that maybe it's also how we're viewing political offices now. It it is become more that celebrity status, um, mm -hmm. whereas before it was the work, it was the intention, it was we're we're here to represent the people and do the best for the people, um, and even despite their their short time in office, they have stayed so active after uh, they left the political sphere to, as you mentioned, all the work they've done with Habitat for Humanity. When I was working with AMI out in, in Edmonton, I was, uh, they were covering uh, one of the, the builds that they were involved with. I, I didn't have an opportunity to, to, to meet and chat with them because they were very busy and they were going through multiple sites in, in a span of days, but it just showed their commitment, even in mm -hmm. their 90s to still be at the sites, giving everything they had, doing the work, like just putting in that energy. I, I think that is something very unique. And I don't know if we're gonna continue to see that. So not only just putting forth the the awareness and, and supporting it financially, but being there, having the boots on the ground, supporting it, get, getting their hands dirty and literally yeah, lifting literally. Uh, lumber and, and hammering and screwing them yeah. in. I mean. I, I don't foresee other political leaders doing that. So I think that is certainly a lesson that could be taken mm -hmm. away and shown for yeah. the future. What do you think, Elizabeth? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I just, I, I really, what struck me when I was reading about um, Rosalind last night is the time, right? So we're talking, you know, 60s, very early 60s. I think it was 62 that she started to work with Jimmy on his first campaign in Georgia. Um, and I think about the time and where women's rights were. So we were sort of second wave feminism there. Um, and she really was talking about things that a lot of other women, especially especially a president's wife or a first lady would not be brave enough to talk about, like even something like mental health, which is still stigmatized, uh, certainly back in the 70s, huge, huge 
huge stigma there. Um, you know, she did a lot of work sort of as a humanitarian. She did a lot of work too around, um, you know, talking about um, poverty and, and reducing poverty. So I think there was a real braveness to bring, when I think about the time, those issues forward. And the other thing was, you know, she, she wasn't, like you said, like other first ladies where she was the president's wife. She actually, in some spaces, um, is viewed as, as equal to or more of a politician than her husband. Um, and this was on an interview I listened to um, where, where they really talked about how she took these issues and championed them. Um, and he trusted her, in fact, so much that he sent her to many meetings sort of to represent um, the party on her own. So th there's just somebody that really sort of ahead of their time is what I think of when I think of this person. And I, I want to read the biography, um, First Lady of Plains, because it, I think it's going to be really interesting to hear more about what she's done there. Yeah, absolutely. And she will for sure be missed. Elizabeth, thank you. We'll You're check welcome. in later with you for the round table. But for now, it's time to head to break. But coming up after the break, I got a short regional news update. Brock Richardson is here to recap a very busy weekend in sports. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI. Smythe in for Dave. You can also be tuning in to Now with Dave Brown in audio form on amiplus.ca. Coming up on the second hour of this Monday, November 20th, 2023 show, there's a new screen reader under development for the Mac. Does this still matter in the age of voiceover? Well, Sean Priest will have the details. And AMI Audio's The Pulse has featured interviews with some of the honorees at this year's Canadian Disability Hall of Fame induction ceremony. Ryan Delahanty will share some of the highlights. All that and more to come. But first, we begin with the regional news update. Beginning in British Columbia, the federal NDPs held their convention in BC over the weekend. Leader Jagmeet Singh took swings at the Prime Minister and his party. I, I gotta tell you, I've seen Trudeau's government up close. I've worked very closely with them. And I get why people are so tired and frustrated. I gotta tell you, one of our, not should be mean, but one of our MPs has described working with the Liberals like wrestling eels that are soaked in oil. That's a bold statement to say. Well, he also warned the attendees about the PC's leader, Pierre Polyev. And with Pierre Polyev, it is all an act. He would make life so much harder for people. When he had the chance to build homes that people could afford, he failed. And now over to the Atlantic region, where Nova Scotia is warning customers after Maritime Fuels declares bankruptcy. 
The province says customers who have paid or prepaid for fuel they did not receive should contact their banks and credit card companies to halt the payments. The province also said that customers who have paid and did not receive service can also reach out to Price Waterhouse Coopers Canada, who is uh, appointed as the insolvency trustees in this case. The company has set up a website online to answer questions customers may have. That is it for the regional news update. It's now time for a sport chat with Brock Richardson. Brock, this was a jam-packed weekend for sports lover. Obviously, the Grey Cup is something we'll get into. There was the NFL, the NHL, the NBA. But first, you want to focus in on the Para Pan Am Games and provide a bit of an update of how things are going. Yes, so we are uh, through the first weekend of the Para Pan Am Games. It runs until next Sunday. So there's lots of action uh, going to be coming our way. But let's start here. Uh, right now, Canada has uh, 11 medals. And let's break that down. We have three golds, one silver, and um, uh, uh, seven bronze. So that's three golds, one silver, seven bronze for a total of 11. I did want to highlight uh, two medal winners from the weekend. Uh, this is kind of a cool thing, Alex, that mm -hmm. uh, Canada saw its youngest athlete at the age of 16, uh, for Fando Liu, uh, win a silver medal in the pool, and then a uh, table tennis player at the age of 66, Stephanie Chan, 65, excuse me, at the, uh, at the age of 65, who won a medal there, and he won the bronze medal. So, uh, very, very cool to see that that happened. Uh, it's never happened before that the oldest and youngest of the delegation won a medal on the same day. So very, very cool from the Canadian Paral Paralympic Committee. And in your 60s to win a medal, that's pretty impressive to still be in physical shape to do so. If we look at the uh, goal ball uh, situation, we know that the Canadian men were defeated 8-2 to two in the uh, first game against the United States. Then they rebounded very strongly against Venezuela. They were defeated, or they defeated Venezuela 11-1 to one by a mercy rule. If we look on the women's side, they only had one game uh, that they played. They lost 5-3 to three against the United States. If we switch over to wheelchair basketball, on the women's side, we have Canada beating Brazil, 61-44. Uh, this was an absolute dominant game. They look like they are setting the pace, and they have bigger fish to fry moving forward. So this is a good start for them as well. They also went on last night to defeat El Salvador, 69-17. Again, another dominant performance. If we look at the men's side of wheelchair basketball, the men defeated Chile 80-17 for their first win. And then they had another one against Venezuela, 82-42 a victory. So both of those teams are set and running. Wheelchair rugby also had two victories over the weekend. So Canada is pulling out of the gates really, really strong. So far, we haven't seen the level of medals because 
swimming and track and field is just getting going. So we're going to see a slew of medals trickle in over the next few hours and days. Well, and, and Brock, too, as you, you just highlight some of these scores, especially like when you look at the wheelchair sports of wheelchair basketball, the women's uh, winning two games with uh, margins. Well, the first one was a margin of uh, about 20 points. The other one, 69 to 17. That is a truly dominating performance. And then for the men's side, even more so beating Chile 80 to 17. And then following that up with another 82 points against Venezuela. It's uh, it's clear to see that the wheelchair sports, at least at this point, the, the team organized sports, Canada is, is really putting on a strong performance. Yes, they are. And it's really, really a good start for them. I, I will tell you this, that when any team has played the home country of Chile, that is a quite an environment i'm not going to call it hostile but it's it's quite an environment they are obviously heavily tilted towards chile and it's just been amazing to watch you love to see the turnout when your home country is doing games and playing games and they never left the side of their country in any of the games i've watched no matter what we're looking at it's just been a really really great thing and we love to see that kind of turnout uh, at the parapanam games and some events have already been uh, sold out for most of the events so there is quite a bit of fandom turnout and uh, cbc gem is doing a decent job at trying to balance all the sports but some are being left off the table, but as we go through the week, I will continue to update us as we go, and we'll talk about these few little hiccups and glitches that I see as we go along. Absolutely, and I mean, uh, I, I, it will be a good warm-up uh, for, for the uh, Canadian teams, especially if we, you got representation in the Paralympics in next summer. Uh, they can deal with a bit of a Chile... Uh, uh, um, a reception, shall we say. Um, moving on to the next big uh, story in sports. The Grey Cup was played yesterday, Brock. What a game. It was exciting. It was tense. It looked like, oh, there's, this is going to be a blowout. And But, you know, Montreal kind of hung in there as long as they needed to. Winnipeg couldn't get that knockout punch. And it ended in literally seconds left in the game, Brock. What a win. Yeah, I mean, this, if you had told me this at the beginning of the year, for one, that Montreal would be there, I'd have said you're insane. Uh, they they had 11 wins on the year in the regular season. Uh, you know, and even when I looked that up last night, I was like, wow, they had that many? That's That's pretty good. But they hung their hat on their defense. They really made the stops when they had to. I did question at the end of the first half why they decided to go for it down on the one-yard line and try to get a touchdown instead of the field goal, but it all worked out in the end, and Montreal deserves everything that it got. They just were a, a brotherhood all together. It was one of the more entertaining uh, Grey Cups that I watched. And now Alex uh, Winnipeg on the flip side is now two and two in the last uh, four Grey Cups that they've been at. Uh, just just an interesting thing that they just can't get it done uh, when it matters. In the last two years, they, they've really got their hearts ripped out at the end of games uh, when they could have had it and they just couldn't get it done. So congratulations to Montreal. But man, a lot of questions will be answered in Winnipeg uh, moving forward. 
Yeah, Montreal taking that big win. As I said, it was 12 seconds left in the game. They were down by uh, a handful of points. They come back, get the touchdown. What a way to end it. Because as you mentioned, like Winnipeg, they were in front. They were kind of controlling play. Yes, the, the Montreal defense was kind of making them feel pressure throughout the game. But there were points, several points where they had, Winnipeg had 10-point leads. They they had strong, comfortable leads within the game. They were putting on the pressure. It looked like, okay, if they score here, the game is over. But they just couldn't close it out. And when you can't close out a team in a game, Brock, well, that's when you give them just enough momentum to come back give them the chance to win at the end of the game. And that's exactly what Montreal did. Well-deserved win. Um, now, we're, we're short on time, Brock, but is what's one of the NFL games that you really wanted to highlight from this weekend? Uh, let's see. The San Francisco 49ers uh, defeating the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. I, I really, 27 uh, 13. Uh, the note that I have written down here is I think we're seeing uh, the 49ers really kind of push themselves into that moment where we're going to see them really picking up the steam. They've kind of had moments where they're strong and then not so strong, but I really think yesterday was sort of that moment where, okay, now we're kind of back on the train and I think they're going to push forward to the playoffs. I was really impressed with what I saw uh, yesterday from uh, the 49ers. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, San Francisco is one of the best teams in the NFC. They're they're going to continue to dominate teams like they did with uh, Tampa Bay. I, I think it also shows Tampa Bay is an average team at best. Uh, they they have great weapons, but I, I just think they're, they're, there's too many missing pieces on the team to really be a, a competitive team down the stretch and into the playoffs, at least this year, maybe going next year they they make some adjustments they they can be back in that conversation but for now we'll have to end the conversation there brock thank you so much have yourself a wonderful day and rest up after all the sports you had to watch this weekend i will do that we'll talk again tomorrow absolutely that is brock richardson at the sports desk coming up after the break there's a new screen reader under development for the mac but does it matter in the age of voiceover? Sean Priest has all the details. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and in audio on AMIplus.ca. now with Dave Brown on AMI. I'm Alex Smythe. A blind developer is working on a new project to create a third-party screen reader for the Mac. Does this still matter in the age of Apple's voiceover? Well, Sean Priest has the details. Sean is one of the co-hosts of Double Tap Canada. Hello, Sean. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks, Alex. How are you? I'm not too bad. So, Sean, tell me a bit more. Who is the developer behind this project? Yeah, this is so interesting. The whole thing about 
um, a third party screen reader for the Mac, it sort of blows your mind. So the developer is a blind Portuguese developer. I'm going to try and say his name and forgive me if I get it wrong, Joao Santos. And he posted recently on AppleViz, a very popular Apple orientated website, saying that he's interested and attempting to create a new screen reader for the Mac. And his sort of model, his target is uh, uh, similar to the screen reader for Windows called NVDA. So that's why he's sort of aiming to replicate an NVDA-like screen reader, but for Mac. It's really intriguing. And, and so what do we know about this uh, screen reader uh, project so far? Are there any details out beyond that? No, uh, this is very much in its infancy. Uh, he, he has released a video of him using it. But again, the, the main point of him sort of unveiling this at the moment is to see, firstly, is there interest in another mm. screen reader? You know, we have VoiceOver, which is built into the Mac OS. Um, it's very popular, obviously. People do like it. So is there an actual appetite for another screen reader? Because it does take a lot of work, as you could probably appreciate, to create these. So firstly, he's asking, does anyone really want a alternative to voiceover? And secondly, he wants just to, um, he says he wants to do something worthwhile and meaningful. And as a blind user himself, he's very interested in this. Um, I, I think from my point of view, you can't have too much choice. It doesn't matter if voiceover is the best screen reader in the world. Just having that as your only option, if for whatever reason you don't get along with it and you don't gel with a screen reader, it makes it very, very difficult. Um, in Windows, we have the luxury of having, you know, JAWS, Narrator, NVDA. And there's areas where, say, Microsoft Narrator will do better than I'm an NVDA screen reader user. In the Windows settings, sometimes Narrator will do far better than NVDA will do. And there's some areas where Jules will do better than both. So having the ability to have all of those in your toolbox, if you like, is really useful, really productive. Uh, whereas on the Mac, we only have VoiceOver as the choice. And as I said, even if you love VoiceOver, and it is a very mature and very um, powerful screen reader, but personally, I'm not a fan. I find it uh, cumbersome. I do find it slightly difficult mm. to use. Now, if I could use something that's very similar to NVDA, swapping between the Mac and Windows would be very almost a seamless experience. And I'm really, really looking forward if that becomes possible. Right, and and you talked about the the idea of just having multiple tools at your disposal, multiple different things to to really uh, kind of capitalize on what they do well. And so, if there's kind of pitfalls in between, uh, like let's say with VoiceOver, there's some things that are a bit clunky; they don't do as well with this new new app or this new project. And VoiceOver uh, kind of software could fill that gap. It could be really beneficial. The one yep. thing I wonder, because I'm I'm myself am not a screen uh, reader or or uh, assistive uh, uh, device user in that regard, but mm. are there ever concerns though when when you're adding more software onto a device like your Mac that it's going to slow things down? Because I that's one thing I I've, I've always heard when it comes to things like Jaws, 
it can really uh, play havoc on the performance of your devices. So is, do you think there should be some concern on how a new um, screen reading software may cause problems for Apple users with VoiceOver already involved? Well, hopefully, I mean, if, if it does cause issues where it becomes almost unresponsive, then obviously that isn't, well, it just isn't good enough. And I would mm -hmm. put that down to a coding issue rather than, you know, the, the the machine, the computer it's running isn't powerful enough to run two at the same time. A screen reader, although it does take up quite a few system resources, it should be more than capable, any computer, modern computer, should be more than capable to run multiple screen readers at once, and they shouldn't interfere with each other. So I, I would argue that, that no, I mean, the choice is either have a... Um, uh, a, a computer system that you cannot use or a slightly slower system that uses a screen reader isn't a choice at all. I would rather have the more accessible option. Um, but I would say there shouldn't be an issue between any screen reader with another one. I can run three screen readers at the same time and not really have an issue. So I would hope that that wouldn't arise as a problem. And again, because this is a blind developer, that is something else that that really uh, is a reason to get excited about. The mm -hmm. NVDA started as a result of two blind coders. And once a, a blind person, someone who relies on this technology is involved in the solution to that problem, I just feel like it's, it's um, I don't know, it's something to get excited about. And so I'm, I'm wondering for your perspective, because you said you're not really a fan of uh, Apple's uh, voiceover. What areas or are there specific um, kind of gaps within uh, the the software, the, the usability of it that you hope this new uh, software that's being developed would be able to address or would be able to improve upon? It's a really interesting question that someone else asked me as well. And you know what? I I actually don't know what it is. It may be that mm. I just find it's like finger gymnastics. Sometimes <laughs> for a keyboard shortcut, you've got to hold down the VO key, control, option, shift, and another key and a function key. And it just seems like I haven't got enough fingers to do this. But of course, that sort of keyboard shortcut comes into your muscle memory after you use it enough times. And as a mainly Windows operator, I suppose it could be a case of, well, you're just not using it enough. So are there any features which I feel voiceover is lacking that I would like to see? I don't know. Voiceover is incredibly powerful and customizable. Um, so I, I don't think it's particularly lacking. I do find it clunky in certain areas, and there's been lots and lots of discussion about how voiceover seems to have stagnated a little bit. There's bugs in mm. there that have been there for years and years and years. And lots of people are saying there's just no more development going on for voiceover. Now, personally, I don't believe that, but there's no denying that we don't hear anything about you know bugs that are being worked on at the minute. Is the next update, are we gonna see a, a fix to this particular bug? There is no back and forth. Now that's very Apple-esque anyway, that's what they do, but it can be frustrating. So my main, um, as, as I said, main excitement for a third party screen reader is the involvement of the community. Mm -hmm. I mean, right from the start now, we're getting a chance to say, you know, what we think about even the possibility of a third-party screen reader. The code will be open source. Uh, anyone can uh, contribute to it. 
Uh, and I just think that community approach to a screen reader is something that, that, that can be really productive. And as I said, something that I'm a real fan of NVDA on Windows for. It's a community project, and it really feels like that. We have that communication, which just makes you feel like you're involved in it. So again, I'm excited. Yeah. Well, and, and, and the fact, too, that uh, this developer is basically reaching out and saying, hey, you know, I'm, I'm looking to do this. Like, what what do you uh, does the community think? I, I think yeah. in that uh, that instance, too, it kind of highlights the fact that there may be some some features or, or issues that they've come across that they feel like, oh, maybe I could improve upon how voiceover is working or I can fill in this gap in, in the coverage of how voiceover interacts on the day to day. Maybe it is just that something as simple as that, that clunkiness as you, you described it and, and just making things more streamlined and simple for users. Yeah, well, again, as I said, if you're trying to almost replicate NVDA on the Mac, <clears throat> excuse me, um, maybe it's enough that it's a seamless experience to switch between the two mm -hmm. operating systems. Maybe that's reason in itself to make this happen, that anyone can feel comfortable. If we had to use a completely different keyboard layout on, on a when we used another computer system, it would drive people crazy. And it is that yeah. sort of thing on... Um, when we're talking about screen readers, you don't want to learn all, all new ways to interact with your system. So that uh, familiarity there may be reason enough on its own. Absolutely. Sean, before I let you go, you got to let me know what's coming up on Double Tap this afternoon. Oh, of course. Well, the first thing we're talking about, the hot gossip in the tech world is What's happening at OpenAI? What's going on with Sam Altman? What's going on with the board of directors? And is that going to have any effect on us? Basically, we're, me and Stephen are going to be very selfish about this. How does this affect <laughs> us, in particular services such as Be My AI, which is something we rely on? Uh, so we're going to be talking about that. And also, we're going to be talking about the event that's just happened recently called AbilityNet. We're going to be talking to Mark Walker about all that's happened there. That sounds like a great episode, Sean. Thank you, and have yourself a wonderful day. Thank you so much. Okay, that was Sean Priest, one of the hosts of Double Tap, and that show airs daily at noon Eastern on AMI-audio. You can also follow that Double Tap team on Twitter, at Double Tap On Air. That's at Double Tap On Air. You know what you can also do on Twitter? you can vote on the daily poll. In today's daily poll, I'm asking you, should historically significant items be allowed to sell at auctions? Yes or no? You can vote on Twitter at Accessible Media or on Facebook at Accessible Media Inc. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI. AMI, I'm Alex Smythe. It is now time to assemble the round table. And as always, we hand it over to the co-host of the show, who in this case, Elizabeth Moeller, you have a really interesting topic. It's all around luggage. And it comes from a, a story of a woman in Toronto having issues with WestJet. 
Yes, I suspect this this particular woman will not be leaving on a jet plane anytime soon. Unfortunately, a Toronto woman is out thousands of dollars in compensation after WestJet, well, sent her luggage thousands of miles in the opposite direction. Uh, she tried to claim compensation, and WestJet says they only can offer up to $2,300. Um, so she wasn't able to get compensation, and she claims that hers, uh, her compensation was much more due to not just losing her luggage, but also having to replace everything, and she had a number of work things in her bag. So I wanted to assemble the roundtable to ask, when traveling, what strategies do you use to protect your luggage? And Remia, I will kick it to mm. you first. I really wish you would have started with somebody else for better advice because <laughs> I don't do much. I have such generic looking suitcases because um, I don't want to carry a bright pink suitcase around. That is fair. But, uh, <laughs> I know, right? That I is have fair. though. <laughs> I have though learned to identify my suitcase, which is new and nice. Um, like having, uh, you know, some kind of uh, color of a ribbon or a string or something to to make my suitcase stand out in at least some identifiable way. Um, I don't even lock my suitcases, Elizabeth. Like I'm basically the what not to do of uh, <laughs> traveling with luggage. But but my main thing if i can help it and it doesn't really matter how long like i've been to costa rica for a week i've been to Ooh, sri lanka for nice. three weeks and in all scenarios if i can help it i will carry on my bags with me um and i will just max out whatever they will allow me and carry on my luggage because i have had luggage stolen slash things lost um and like particularly I remember uh, 10 years ago, my phone was taken out of my luggage. I had a second phone oh, in my luggage and it was taken out and that was scarring, definitely. So as much as I can, I light, I pack light and I take the bags on with me. I'm just too terrified to check in luggage. <laughs> and Nisreen, why don't we head over to you? What do you do to make sure that your luggage is protected when you're traveling? I mean, if I was in that situation, I would freak out for sure. I'm, my cousins have history of uh, getting their luggage stolen or lost, and they've lost, like, you know, the PS3s back in, like, back then, and they lost, like, high-tech stuff, uh, technology. I don't know why they put it in the big suitcase. I mean, they're big. They're big pieces. So it's hard not to put it in the big suitcase. So um, it's you're in, put in difficult situations. So I've DJed in LA uh, not too long ago and I had to take my, you know, my turntable and carrying that on the plane was a struggle. <laughs> I refused to check it in and I didn't know what to do. So I told them, like, I can't check this in. First of all, it's very fragile, and I can't lose this. It's like mm -hmm. thousands of dollars, not going to happen. So if you can, try, try to, you know, take everything that's valuable on your, uh, you know, as a, as a bag or whatever. So I held it. It was a struggle because I had layovers, but it was worth it. Like, it's worth not losing that sort of stuff. So whatever you can, I would say just keep it in your hand. Keep it in your yeah, well, right? Sorry, just some kind of some kind of overnight thing, like it, not just valuables, mm. but also if you can predict that your stuff is going to get lost, what do you need with you to at least make it mm -hmm. a couple nights or so? Yeah, yeah, that's what I do. So I do like carry like an extra 
clothes, like extra clothes or, or like extra whatever in my handbag just for a one night thing. Yeah. Uh, just in, just in case, because I did have a luggage, you know, getting delayed one time and that was it. But, um, it, it is a struggle, but what I do sort of kind of like suggest is to take older clothes, like not new expensive clothes with you. So if you're going on vacation, mm -hmm. I know it's cute, but is it going to get ruined? You're going to walk a lot in your expensive shoes. Is it worth it? So that's what I suggest. Yeah, but Nisreen, I, I got to show off to everybody else at how good I'm old looking all the fancy new cute. clothes. Who said old stuff is not cute? That's, that's a very good point. Now, for myself, I, I always view it like, you know, there's th certain things I'll try to do. Like, I'm not going to go out of my way. And like, I used to, you know, like lock the suitcase and stuff. But there was a time where they would just snip those locks and investigate mm -hmm. anyways, especially when luggage was being searched at, at certain points. So I stopped doing that. But, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll kind of combine it if I'm traveling with someone else. Okay, I'll take a couple change of clothes and I'll put it in their suitcase and vice versa. So that way, if luggage does get lost, then you can, uh, you at least have something to get started. Again, all the valuables, I'm keeping it in my backpack. I always travel with the backpack. So, you know, all the electronics that you need and anything valuable, your your information, your uh, computers, laptop, uh, obviously all that stuff, it stays on me. Um, that said, I, I still like to check a bag because I've seen uh, people who just do, oh, I just do the carry-on uh, method, like you said, Ramya, but mm. I, I I like to travel too heavy. I, I have too many things. Oh. I'm always, like, anticipating extra luggage and, oh, I need an extra two pair uh, changes of clothes. If I'm there for seven days, I need nine changes. Part of that, I think, <laughs> is, is the mentality of having to travel for work, especially when I was doing, you know, postcards, where I'm literally having to change clothes every day because we're doing different shoots and different segments, so I need to look like I'm doing, uh, wearing something different or it's appearance of a different day. So uh, th th that played a role in it as well. Elizabeth, what about you though? Like, do you have any strategies or tips or tricks that you employ to make yeah, sure, sure your luggage is protected? I mean, I think we've touched on a lot of things. So I learned through a disaster. Like I was that person that had my luggage lost. I just had my purse with me on the plane and I was going away to an all-inclusive for a week. So it did become very expensive. I was buying a lot of things there and I was making do. Um, so yeah, I always have, a, I, I basically ask myself, could I live out of my carry-on? Like if I'm checking luggage, could I live out of what's on my carry-on? That's mm -hmm. a big piece. I do lock my luggage. I also put things on it that I can identify. I, I'm with you, maybe not a bright pink suitcase, but I put uh, usually a Canadian flag on. I also take a picture of my suitcase because I find at the airport when the flight attendants are assisting you to perhaps get your luggage, they're asking what it looks like. You're trying to describe it. Is it purple? Is it blue? What is it? So pulling out a picture is really helpful. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that that's a really helpful strategy. The other thing that I try to do, um, you know, unfortunately for this lady, she had a, a laptop in her luggage and that was part of the cost. I do try to keep that kind of stuff in my carry-on, but they're so rough with it at security that I, I worry about that as well. Um, so the other thing too with luggage that I do is, um, you know, I will also mark like on a tag, you know, my name, um, you know, phone number, email, so that if it does get lost, um, you know, certainly that it's, that it's able to be returned 
turned. I, I think it's tricky with the situation that, that um, you know, how much should an airline compensate? Perhaps a question for another day, but it's it's tricky when something gets lost. And then there's, of course, there's the burden of proof. Like how you, how do you prove that you had all that stuff in your luggage? And that's that gets a bit tricky as well. Yeah, for sure. So you both mentioned that you, you've experienced some incident of, of whether it's damage or lost luggage. What do you think in terms of compensation or responsibility the airline should have to ensure that you're not kind of stranded or, or if it's a situation does arise that your luggage isn't there, what should they be doing or, or be held and expected to do when that happens to you? And uh, we'll start with uh, Robbie on this one. I, I see the thing is that I when I hear you don't hear as much about people's luggage getting lost or delayed you only hear personal anecdotes right like is there some kind of stat out there to say you know this company and this airline does the worst at um, luggage maybe I don't know I didn't look it up but uh, I think that basically it's become so normal but yet so tedious like when you hear about how long it takes to actually um, not just receive compensation but to file the the missing luggage to file the 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 kind of documents and proof as mm -hmm. you say proof of burden all these or burden of proof all these things that you need to get done on your end to say hey man I was going for a wedding and I lost everything including the dress I was supposed to wear and I've spent this much money like you're you end up having to do so much of the work which I think is ridiculous um, it the only not the only, but the main way that I can think airlines can do better is by actually doing better on their end for lost or damaged mm -hmm. or delayed luggage so that we don't have as many issues because the issues are so normalized now around the table. All of us have at least one example of things being lost or stolen or damaged. And I think that that's, that's way too high of a probability that you just have to go in thinking my stuff will get lost. Yeah, and like yeah. for for instance, for myself, like I literally had a a new luggage bag, um, took it on my first trip down to Aruba a couple of years ago, and literally a zipper came off uh, of it on on like one of those side pouches. And on my first my first flight, not even my first trip, it was the first flight, and I'm already like, wow, that sucks. But it's it's too small to go through the whole process of like claiming and this and that, and it's just a small a single zipper. Is more that new uh, nuisance that you have to deal with, and then obviously, mm -hmm. if you're you're losing stuff, or stuff's getting lost or stolen, or or like a suitcase is unusable, then as you say, Rami, it's that massive headache to it all. Uh, yeah. Elizabeth, last word on this goes to you. Yeah, I think for sure, like, you know, at, at face value, that 2300 might seem like a, a good amount of money. But then I think about people who use assistive technology that they might have to pack mm -hmm. or for, you know, we've, we've, I won't rehash it. We've talked lots on the show about mobility devices. And so I do feel like there needs to be sort of another category for, did you have um, medical or mobility um, things that were checked that, that are beyond that cost? Because when I first read, it, I was like, yeah, that seems reasonable for clothes and some luggage. But then I thought, well, depending on what the person had and why they had it, I think there almost needs to be like a second category for some kind of extenuating circumstances. Yeah, that's a very good point. Uh, Elizabeth, that's all the time we have for the round table. Thank you all so right. much once again for filling in as co-host this last You're week welcome. and a bit. Have yourself a wonderful day. I will, thank you. And Ramya, before I say goodbye to you, you gotta let me know what's coming up on today's episode of Kelly and Ramya.
Will do. We're talking with filmmaker, writer, director, and actor Emily Schooley about her short film Psyche. And this was featured in the most recent episode of Disrupt on AMI TV uh, slash AMI Plus. So we're going to talk more to her about that. Uh, also, two upcoming shows at the Grand Theatre in London, Ontario, that uh, we're all excited for. Community reporter Annette Dennis is going to tell us more um, on this and on other things going on in the London area. Plus, on Know Your Rights, we're going to be speaking, by we, I mean, Danielle McLaughlin, is going to be speaking with Professor Laverne Jacobs about disability and human rights law. This is a huge guest guest and get, and um, we're really looking forward to the conversation they have planned. Well, sounds like another phenomenal episode. Ramia, have yourself a wonderful day. You too, Alex. Okay, that was Ramia Muthan, the co-host of Kelly and Ramia. And again, that airs daily Eastern Time, 2 p.m on AMI TV. Coming up after the break, AMI Audio's The Pulse has featured interviews with some of the honorees at this year's Canadian Disability Hall of Fame. Ryan Delahanty will share some of the highlights. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI. I'm Alex Smythe. AMI Audio's The Pulse with Joita Gupta has featured interviews with some of the honorees and inductees at this year's Canadian Disability Hall of Fame. Some of the guests include para-athletes Chantal Benoit, Natalie Wilkie, and former para-athlete turned former provincial cabinet minister Michelle Stilwell. Podcast coordinator Ryan Delahanty will share some of those highlights, and he's here now. Hello, Ryan. Good morning. Good morning, Alex. Nice to join you today. Yeah, it's great to have you on. So let's let's get into this because Juita had an interview first with a wheelchair basketball player Chantal Benoit, and she is recognized as being the, one of the, if not the greatest female wheelchair basketball player in history. And so she was inducted into the Canadian Disability Hall of Fame. So what stands out to you, Ryan, from this interview with uh, uh, Chantal? Definitely a few things that jumped out. I, I think a lot of people get into parasport almost accidentally. It's not something that maybe they had envisioned for themselves. Uh, they're maybe at the rehab center and somebody sees that they've got some athletic prowess and recommends a sport they never really thought about playing. And then they take to it and it really resonates. They find a community, they enjoy the competition. Uh, and so I think that was, you know, an interesting story. And obviously she was there when there really was a little structure or investment. She had to be part of that movement to really push to get this considered and for Canada to put forward a women's basketball team and they see the incredible result and uh, that really starts to help uh, pave the way so I thought that was really uh, remarkable with her interview yeah absolutely and and to build on that too like uh, as you say it's like when you're you're involved in the Paris sport at such an early uh kind of uh, juncture in its development uh, a, a issue that's been lingering for a long time is the the idea of compensation in, in pay and so during Juita's interview with uh, Chantal that she asked her about the funding for the Paralympic sports and how it's involved during her time and this is what Chantal had to say the problem I have right now is more that at the national level uh, in international 
there's no problem for the money. I think the problem is domestically. Uh, at, the, at the basis level, this is where we need to put a lot more uh, time and effort to allow the, an organization to be healthy and, uh, and provide opportunity for them to grow. And we are in a situation right now that you do have a, a local team who will have a star athlete. And unfortunately, the star athlete will be taken by the national organization away from the local organization. We bring the local organization on the bottom again. And I think we should focus a little bit more on this to create a, a, a bigger and stronger foundation and uh, to have at the same time, automatically, the best national team program. So that was uh, one of the, the episodes with uh, Chantal Benoit. Another episode, uh, Joita interviewed Michelle Stilwell, who is a six-time gold medalist in wheelchair basketball and athletics. And she made the leap into BC politics in 2013, where she eventually became a provincial cabinet minister. So I'm curious for you, Ryan, having listened to these different episodes, are there any commonalities or, or similar kind of experiences or, or um, kind of um, thoughts that you, you kind of pull from the three different interviews that Juita did? Definitely the the dedication of everybody involved. And, you know, they found the sport that resonated with them. And it's not an easy thing, especially where, you know, they're not that well funded. And, uh, you know, maybe a lot of your friends or, you know, schoolmates or whomever aren't that familiar. And so it's really done out of passion. And I always appreciate, you know, somebody's motives being uh, that they really believe in something and they see the beauty of it. They see the positive nature of it. And so that's definitely a common thread between all three that they, you know, they found this thing, something that they maybe hadn't sought out, um, that they didn't really picture for themselves, but then, you know, dove in head first and then try to raise everybody else up around them. When you see the impact it's had on you and your life, you can't help but want to share that with others and try and break down those barriers, whether that be the lack of funding, lack of opportunities that, you know, uh, with Michelle, she'd moved to, I think, uh, Vancouver Island and the options were a lot more limited and uh, goes back to the mainland. Somebody sees she's got fast hands. Next thing she knows, she's in wheelchair racing. And, uh, you know, she loses, I think, because she tells a story where her first race, she wasn't that confident, that sure that she wanted to be part of it. And she lost to a nine-year-old boy. And then she was determined to really dig in and win some medals. Um, so that definitely, having lost to many nine-year-old boys, I assume, in my life, uh, that definitely resonated with me as well. Yeah, you know, I, absolutely. And, and part of that as well is the fact that, as you say, just that, drive, that passion, that determination uh, from just being that athlete, especially a para-athlete, and, and overcoming that and, and finding success is, is certainly key. And uh, Juita, as part of the conversation, kind of started to ask how her Paralympic uh, journey impacted and played a role in her political career, and this is what she had to say. Mm -hmm. um, well, I think there was certainly... Um... I had some respect within the, com the community and, um, you know, I think people listened when I spoke, um, they, they understood I brought a different kind of perspective. And I think that's, what's so important about representation and, you know, making sure that we do have people with disabilities running for office because, you know, it's important that the disability community has that voice and that, um, their voice is heard and it's represented in all levels of government and all levels of policy. And, and so I think really 
for me, it was being that voice and knowing that I could have that policy influence um, to support the decisions that have impact on people's day-to-day lives. And now the final interview that Juita did as part of this series uh, involved Natalie Wilkie, who uh, won the or uh, was awarded the King Clancy Award for raising awareness for people with disabilities in sport. And she is a Canadian Paralympic cross-country skier. She was, in fact, the youngest member of Team Canada at the 2018 Paralympics in Pyeongchang, and she won a gold, silver, and bronze at those games. So, Ryan, from what I understand, too, uh, Natalie didn't even like skiing when she was younger. So what changed with her story? That's right. I think she came from a, a skiing family and maybe, you know, it felt pretty commonplace, maybe didn't uh, pique her interest that much. And so she was bribed. Uh, her mother would give her candy, promise her hot chocolate after she finished. So that maybe was enough incentive to, you know, go out, join the family, uh, dive more into uh, skiing. And then even one of the leaders in her youth ski program uh, would b- bring some, I think, pretty pretty good homemade cookies, uh, which again, a nice little incentive, a little treat. Uh, you know, you're you're cold, you're wet, you know, you may want to watch TV. There's a show you haven't seen yet. So sometimes you need that extra motivation. But then she really grew to join the competition. And, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, for lack of better term, you know, people may you know, see uh, some of these programs as almost like a consolation prize or if it's something that you're maybe not seeking out. And then the whole world opens up to you when you actually see, um, you know, how many opportunities there are, the high level of competition, all the incredible people you'll meet, and just how, you know, fulfilling it can be personally. And, you you know, cross-country skiing with your family, you might never envision that you're going to Pyongyang. Uh, but then, you know, you get involved and all of a sudden you're competing across the world that you're the youngest person on Team Canada. And so, you know, it's been quite a journey and she's still very young. So it's uh, exciting to see, you know, where she'll go next with sport and great to see her getting uh, this more encouragement bribe now with uh, the uh, King Clancy Award. So that'll help, I think, uh, keep her uh, competing and motivated. Again, we have a clip here. We'll play very quickly of what she describes as driving her as an athlete. I think the challenge of personal development is what I'm most focused on. I mean, it's one thing to win competitions, but I think it's a whole other ball game to set goals for yourself um, developmentally. Like maybe it's a certain technique that I'm working on, or maybe I just want to ski a race like tactically well, and I have like a plan and a goal that I want to execute. Um, so it's not even just about the results. It's about the specific goal that I have for that race. Um, after each race, I always ask myself like, what went well, what didn't go so well, what could I do next time? And I think that really keeps it interesting and keeps the challenge high. And I mean, every single race is different. There's going to be different people racing. There's going to be different conditions. Um, and certain courses play to other people's strengths or maybe your strengths. And so there's always like something fresh or new or exciting or challenging going on. Well, Ryan, uh, thank you so much for uh, bringing these clips forward. That's all the time we have. Have yourself a wonderful day. Thanks, Alex. Hopefully we'll uh, be able to catch up soon. Absolutely. That was podcast coordinator Ryan Delahanty with some clips from The Pulse with Juwita Gupta, which can be heard Saturdays and Sundays, 2 p.m. Eastern on AMI-audio. That's all the time for the show. Dave is back tomorrow. So until then, I want to wish you all a good day and thank you for hanging out with me for a few hours to start your Monday. Take care.
Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Join me every couple weeks for the Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther podcast, where we learn about outdoor tech and tips. Plus, we look at news affecting the environment. AMI's Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther is available from your favorite podcast provider.